Well, it is uh, a great privilege to be back with you uh, this morning. Uh, Again, we were here a year ago, but we've known Deemer for a few years and uh, have come to really love and appreciate him. And uh, he has such a heart for you all and for for the Lord. Uh, He loves you, and uh, that comes out just in conversation with him, and he cares so deeply. So I'm thankful that you have such a, a sincere, caring pastor. You know, there's a lot of pastors that don't care that much. You know, they're, they're just there to take a paycheck or there to promote their own glory. And, uh, and I've just seen in interacting with Deemer on a personal level for the last few years, his, his true, sincere, humble love for you all. And uh, so what a, what a blessing to get to be here and hopefully to minister to him uh, in preaching the word. Um, so as we approach uh, the word today, uh, it is a topic that is not uh, very popular. It's not very comfortable. It's the topic of fear. And so as we approach this, uh, I just need to kind of let you know, we, we've been at a youth camp all week. Uh, I, we took our youth. It's not technically my job, but we were there, and I was sleeping in the middle of a cabin of junior high boys for the last three or four days. So... For me to transition from that to this, I need you to pray for me right now, okay? Uh, Because we're pretty tired. Um, But uh, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you my very, very best effort. And I need you to give your best effort to to attending the Word of God this morning as well. Because this is not a, a performance, and you're not evaluating the performance. This is the Word of God, and God, God is examining us. He evaluates us, right? And so I will stand before the Lord for, you know, I will stand before the Lord someday and give an account of my life, and so will you. And so let's take this moment to pray for each other, um, not just for me, but for you as well, that that the Word of God would come into your heart clearly and make an impact uh, for, for His glory, and that He would use me in spite of my weakness and in spite of my, the hindrances that I bring to the table, and that he would work in you in spite of your hindrances, right? Because we all, are, we all have mixed motives, and we all have limited capacities. And, uh, but his spirit is limitless. His spirit is powerful, and he is controlling all things to build us up into his image. So let's pray together right now that, that this would be a time that would move us one step closer to being like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the God of all creation. You are a mighty God, and you are in charge of what goes on here. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you have provided us everything that we need for life and godliness in your word, by your spirit, and in the church that you've equipped us, Lord, to serve you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that that whatever distractions are going on in, in our life, whatever hindrances, whatever whatever would keep us, Lord, from a full attention to your word, that you would help us to fight those things in our own heart, to come and to sit under your word, to listen to it, and to believe and obey it. So help us today, because you deserve that kind of attention, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. December 26th, 2004, There was a 9.0 earthquake 
in the middle of the Indian Ocean near the island of Sumatra. It was 9.0, which is gigantic, in the middle of the ocean. That's, that equals about 23,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs, the power that was unleashed in that moment. One shelf, two tectonic plates moving, and one just popping up like that, displacing an infinite amount of water that you can't even imagine. And it sent waves, shock waves, in every direction. And in the ocean, over the next few hours, some of the waves that radiated out from that reached 98 feet high. And it affected 11 different coastlines, the countries, the coastlines of 11 different countries, from India and Thailand all the way over to East Africa, which is 3,000 miles away. There were millions of people living in the affected regions, beachgoers, vacationers, and then the people that support all of that industry and tourism and all of that kind of stuff. Without any warning, without realizing that these waves were on their way, they were just living their normal lives. You know, the, the guys that were delivering newspapers and food and working in the coffee shops on the coast, on the, on the beach. And then, of course, the tourists who were there for Christmas vacation, thousands of them. When these waves show up out of nowhere, wiping out entire cities. The final death toll, as far as we know, was about 230,000 people. 230,000 people killed by these waves. 1.7 million people were made homeless in an instant. Without warning, without any preparation, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. I mean, what do you do? You're sitting on a beach and all of a sudden these waves come out of nowhere. Can you imagine that? And that was one of the biggest problems with that, why so many people died was because there was no warning system. There was no way to know that a tsunami was on the way. There was no, there was no manual for this. Now, this was the biggest uh, tsunami, the most deadly tsunami in the history of mankind that we know of. There was no real precedent for something like this. But what if there had been? What if there had been a warning? What if they had known in advance that this was going to happen? Maybe even years in advance. What if someone told them that years in advance, on a day that we don't know specifically, but there will be a day when a tsunami comes through and wipes out your entire city? What if, what if they had been told that? Do you think they would have built their house there? Do you think they would have raised their families there? What if, there, what if they had known it was coming? What if there was a manual that, that told them how to survive such an event? Do you think they would have read it? Do you think they would have been prepared? Do you think you would have? 
What if, I, what if I told you that a massive firestorm is going to run through this area, wiping out hundreds of thousands of people? Would you, would you change your lifestyle? Would you change how you build your house? Would you change where you build your house? Would you move? Would you, if there was a way to survive this, would you make yourself aware of it? Would you be ready? You know, fear is a gripping thing, right? When you have a genuine fear of something, it has a, a way of demanding your attention when you fear something and you know there's a, a serious danger, it, it grips your attention and your focus. We fear many things. I mean, fear is a, is a common experience among us. I mean, who here has, not, has never been afraid? Everyone experiences fear of some kind or another, and there are many reasons to be afraid. Fear of pain, fear of rejection, fear of failure. Perhaps fear of losing friends or loved ones. Maybe you fear losing your job. Some of you fear sending your kids to college or even letting them drive out of the cul-de-sac. And to be honest, I fear some of your kids driving out of the cul-de-sac. That makes me nervous, right? Some of the kids at our church, I'm definitely like, man... <laughs> I hope whoever's, you know, whoever's deciding to give him his license, that they're a wise person, right? Some of you fear just even driving on the freeway, and there's good reason. Fear, terror, and dread, at some point in your life you will experience these emotions, and ultimately the fear of death hangs over everyone. With fear being such a common problem for humanity, then, it's not surprising that the Bible talks about fear frequently. In fact, if you just kind of plug in the words fear, afraid, frightened, anxiety, terror, and dread, you just plug those in and do a search, it shows up 672 times in the Scriptures. Just those words, right? And of course, the, the emotion of fear, the things that are fearful in the scriptures show up even more than that. But just those words themselves, 672 times. There's only 10 books in the Bible that don't contain those words. And some of them, some of those books that don't contain those words contain scathing pronouncements of judgment from the Lord in which he'll say to, uh, you know, say the people of Edom, uh, don't be so cocky, basically. Uh, in time, I'm going to wipe out your civilization by slaughter, Right? That's kind of a scary thing, but those words don't show up in that book. So if you were to actually look at the scriptures, there's really only three books where fear, maybe four, four books where fear is not somehow related or connected or addressed in it. One would be the Song of Solomon, and most of you are probably afraid to even read that book, right? The other ones would be um, uh, like Philemon and Second and Third John. Philemon is one chapter long, 2 John and 3 John both one chapter long. So three chapters, the, little, the littlest books, and those are the ones that you could say, okay, fear is not somehow involved in this, right? So fear is a major theme 
of human history and the fear of death, uh, the scriptures say, holds us all in prison, really, until Christ sets us free. Now, if you were to look at the scriptures and, and look at the, the references to fear, most of the, many of the time, often, it is just a statement of fact. Someone feared something, like Lot fearing to stay in the, the land of Zohar, or God telling Noah that the animals would be afraid of him. These are just statements of fact. Someone was afraid. Jacob feared that some harm might befall his youngest son, Benjamin, on his way to Egypt. So it's just a statement of fact. But what's kind of interesting is most often the, the word fear shows up in the form of a command of some kind. The command, do not be afraid or fear not, or something like that occurs frequently. For instance, in Genesis 15:1, God told Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am, I am your shield. Again, in Genesis 26, God told Isaac, I am your God, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. To Jacob, he says, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, don't be afraid. Joshua was commanded at least four separate times, do not be afraid, as he was about to face his enemies on the battlefield. And many more times in the Old Testament, you hear God saying, fear not, for I am with you, or something similar to that. In the New Testament, you see Jesus saying, uh, I'm with you always. He, he tells people, do not be afraid. He told the Apostle Paul, don't be afraid to, to preach uh, in, uh, in Corinth. You see that many times. In Revelation, Jesus tells one of the churches, uh, do not be afraid of the suffering that you're about to endure. But that's not the only command that fear shows up in. The other one, which happens even more often, is this. You shall fear the Lord your God. So we're told to not fear man, not to, not to fear disaster, not fear for your, you know, don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear. Don't be afraid of what man can do to you. But there is one thing that you are commanded to fear, and that is you are to fear the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. Genesis, or Deuteronomy 13 says the same thing. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments. Listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. There are over 200 specific references in the Bible to the fear of the Lord. 200. You may have heard of Proverbs 1-7, which I think you read earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9-10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 15-33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And so it goes on and on and on. So with it factoring so prominently in the Scriptures, because, you know, fear being everywhere and being such a common experience, and it's showing up in, all, in, in every possible way that you see fear showing up in human uh, experience, you see that showing up in Scripture. But the most common command, the most common way that fear shows up is in the fear of the Lord. 200 times specifically those words so with that being the case, how prominently does the fear of the Lord factor into your thinking? 
How often do you even consider the fear of the Lord in your own life? How much does the fear of the Lord affect your decisions? Affect how you deal with sin? Affect how you interact with other people? How big a part does the fear of the Lord play? This is kind of an uncomfortable subject for us, isn't it? I mean, what is all this talk about the fear of God? Are we really supposed to fear Him? I thought He was kind and loving and gracious. Well, yes, He is. So why would I fear such a God? We often think in our culture that if someone is to be feared, then that's an evil person. That it must be an evil God that, that we would fear that God, right? We have a hard time imagining a good God that we should also be afraid of. In recent decades, people have tried to say that the fear of the Lord is just a healthy reverence and respect for Him. It's become ex- extremely popular to just say, well, it doesn't mean fear. It means that you're just supposed to respect God. You're just supposed to kind of reverence Him, right? It doesn't mean to be afraid. God's not scary. Is that really what the Scripture teaches? Is it, does the Scripture teach that God is just someone that you should just have a, a healthy respect for? What does the Bible really mean by fear of God? Well, let me show you a few passages and you tell me what you think, okay? So, in the Old Testament, there are about four Hebrew words that are translated fear. Four different Hebrew words. What do you think they mean? Well, there's nothing magical to this, right? There's no Hebrew code here. They mean fear, right? (laughs) These Hebrew words for fear mean fear, mean dread, trembling, to be afraid. And you could go all over the Old Testament to show this, but I want to show you this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you tell me what kind of fear this is talking about. Okay, Deuteronomy 6.1, listen to this. You can open there if you want, because we're going to spend a little, we're going to read through this passage and we're going to cover a lot, so you know, hang on there. But Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where, you're, where you are going over to possess it. So this is Moses kind of giving his last sermon to the Israelites before he heads, before they go into the promised land. He's not going to join them. So he's reminding them of all the law and everything that God has taught them and everything that God is commanding them to do before they go into the promised land. They've just been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they had failed to obey God. And God, he cursed them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? So now he's saying, all right, get ready. You're going to go into the promised land. And these are the commandments that God is teaching you. Verse 2, so that your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Okay, so there's, he wants you to fear him, which results in keeping his commandments 
And the result of that is that your days would be prolonged. These are promises to Israel, by the way. So then verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so there's the promise. There's the reward for doing what he says, right? Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So what's he saying here? This is so important that they should be in front of your eyes all the time. Don't forget it. And just as kind of a side note, if someone's not walking in accordance with what God's called them to do, Either they don't know what God has said, they, they don't care what God has said, or they've forgotten what God has said, right? So which one are you, right? If you, if you know what God has said and you care what God has said, then you must be careful to find a way to remind yourself of what God has said so that you will walk in accordance with what he's called you to do. Okay. So, you shall write them on your doorpost, verse 9, and on, and on your gates, and then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And here we go, verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. Okay, so you're to fear him and only him, and, it's, and this is a contrast between fearing and serving the Lord and fearing and serving other idols and, 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 and any other material thing, right? So there's a contrast. You can't serve both. You can't fear both. To fear God must be singularly focused. He is your only fear. Your only true fear. He is the fear that trumps all other fears. Why? Verse 15. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. There's a good kind of jealousy, right? Like a husband's jealousy for his wife. Why is that good? Because he has the right to her love and devotion. And if she gives that love and devotion to another man, he has a right to be jealous of that, right? Well, God has the right to your devotion, to your worship, to your affection, to your love. He has the right, and he has created you for that. And you belong to him. So to take that devotion and to give it to something else is spiritual adultery, right? And it says here that God is a jealous God. Okay, so why should you fear God? Because he is a jealous God. 
Verse 15, otherwise, the anger of the Lord, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. What kind of fear do you think that is? What kind of fear does this produce? Is that just a healthy respect? You shall fear the Lord your God because God who dwells among you is a jealous God. And if you do not fear the Lord your God, He will wipe you off the face of the earth. Wow. Wait a minute. Is that in the, is that in the Bible? Is that here? Is that the God that you worship? Is that the God that you serve? And is that the kind of fear that you have of Him? Verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. This is where the Israelites grumbled and then the Lord, um, He killed many of them. Okay? You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord gave your fathers. Okay, now we could go on. He, he says it again in verse 24. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival. So that's just one snapshot of what the Old Testament says about the fear of the Lord that pretty much encapsulates the whole thing. It's, you, you know, why should you fear God? Because he, he, you belong to Him. He's jealous for your worship. And He has told you how to be pleasing, O Israel. He's told you how to be pleasing to Him. And if you reject the fear of the Lord and you go after other gods, He will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that the rest of the history of Israel bears that out. Before I go any further, let me, I, as a side note, Exodus, is it 33, where he shows himself to Moses? He shows himself, Exodus 30, is it 4? Yes. 34, verse 6. I want you to see the contrast here between, uh, of the character of God, okay? This is the Lord showing himself to Moses and his glory to him. Exodus 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Okay, so that is the God that we, that we know, right? That's the God that we're used to. But it's an incomplete view. God is compassionate, He is gracious, and He forgives. He is slow to anger. So His anger is being kindled. His wrath is being stored up. But he doesn't, he doesn't drop the hammer immediately. Okay? 
But it's, it's still there. It's still hanging there. Okay, so that he is abounding in loving kindness. And then verse 7, continuing on, he forgives, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So the, the effects, he, he is going to deal with the, with the sins of the fathers so severely that it does affect the descendants. What kind of fear should we have of such a God? It's not the fear that good people have of a wicked tyrant. That's, it's, that's not the fear that we have of this God. It is the fear that a criminal has of a righteous judge. Of the righteous judge. Because God is compassionate. He is gracious. He does desire your good. And yet He warns you that you need to draw near to Him, to fear Him, to come after Him, to worship Him, or else the consequences of His justice meted out against the wicked will be very, very severe. And so that fear is a real fear, not just a respect, not just a healthy respect. Okay, so this passage, you know, defines the Old Testament approach to this, right? Is this the way that the whole Bible talks about it? I once heard a Q&A at a Ligonier conference in which a person asked R.C. Sproul about the fear of the Lord, and he basically came with the premise that that in the Old Testament, you see the fear of the Lord mentioned all the time, but in the New Testament, it's barely mentioned. You know, why is that? And that's kind of our perception, right? That the Old Testament, God is this fearful God. The New Testament, it's, He's nice, benign, gentle, gracious. Is that really the way that it is? I'll just say it plainly. That that is completely false. You're not dealing with a different God in the New Testament. God did not change, He did not change His ways in the New Testament. He is the same. I just want to take a moment to kind of put this to rest. There are a couple of Greek words translated fear. Any guesses as to what they mean? Fear, trembling, to be afraid. And there are many passages in the New Testament, but let me just show you a couple uh, that, that pertain to this. Luke chapter 12. Go ahead and open up there. Luke chapter 12. Verse 1 through 9. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered that they were stepping on one another, Jesus began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, that's, so be, be careful of that. Be aware of that. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So whatever you think you're hiding, it, it will be exposed. Verse 3, According to whatever you have said in the dark, 
will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Okay, so the, the Pharisees uh, are the ones that they, the, the disciples are afraid of. They know their threats. They know how they oppose uh, Jesus and his followers. And they use that sort of peer pressure. They use even the, the threat of punishment and death to coerce people into conformity. He says, beware of their hypocrisy. Nothing will be hid, covered up that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be made known. Okay, so he says, verse 4, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. Are you afraid of people that can kill the body? Have you, has anyone here ever been threatened, had their life threatened, or felt threatened, or in a threatening situation? You go downtown and in a back alley somewhere, a couple mean-looking guys looking at your nice watch. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you ever been in that situation? Most of us probably have not. Some of you maybe. But this is a real threat of death that, uh, that the Israelites had seen, that the Jews at that time had seen many times um, where people were stoned for, uh, for heresy or for opposing the Pharisees, for breaking the Mosaic law. Uh, where the Romans would crucify rebels and criminals. They, they were not unfamiliar with brutal uh, executions. And Jesus says here, don't be afraid of those people that can kill the body. But have nothing more that they can do to you. Verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. yes. I tell you, fear him. What kind of fear do you think he's talking about there? What kind of fear does that produce? Is it just a healthy respect? He says, don't fear these guys who threaten your life but can't do anything to you afterwards. Fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell. God is a bigger threat to you than any human, than any natural disaster, than any demon. God is a bigger threat to you. He is a bigger problem for you than anything that would harm your physical life. You should care and be concerned more about being right with Him than on keeping the peace in your relationships. You should be more concerned about being right with Him than having all the money in the world, than having all the stability in the world, than on ma maintaining a nice, comfortable family dynamic. You should be more concerned about being right with Him because, as Hebrews says, it's appointed for each man to die once and then comes the judgment. You will face him, and he has control over your eternal soul. Do you fear this one? I mean, look at what he says 
Down in verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What kind of fear is Jesus talking about here? I'm going to take you to another passage, Romans 11, 17 through 22. Romans 11, 17 through 22. Jesus, uh, Paul is talking about how the, uh, the Jews who were a part of basically this, he uses the metaphor of, a, of an olive tree. And the Jews were part of this olive tree of, the, of the, the family of God, the covenant people of God. They were in God's kingdom. And there are, the, the individual Jews are these branches coming off of this olive tree. And the ones that did not believe him, did not obey him, God breaks them off and throws them away. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Okay, so what's he talking about? So those natural branches, the, the, the Israelites who did, who did not believe and were broken off, and now you being Gentiles being the wild olive branches, when you believe in Christ, you're grafted into that kingdom of God, that family of God. So you're grafted in while they were broken off. So he's saying here, verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. What's he saying here? Don't, don't be Gentiles. Don't be arrogant against your Jewish fellow believers. Don't be arrogant against them. Remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 19, you will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Aren't I special? Verse 20, he says, well, quite, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. If you don't believe, if you, if you come and you decide to turn away from faith in Christ, he will not spare you. Verse 22, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, those who disbelieved, severity. God's severe towards the unbelieving. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, meaning if you continue to believe if you do not end up denying the faith if you continue in his kindness otherwise he says you also will be cut off this is the new testament he's speaking to it he's speaking to a church he's speaking to believers or at least professed believers there's those two those twin guardrails he says there of the kindness and the severity of god and if you let go of one for the other, you're, gonna lo you're, you're losing a biblical balance of, what, of this God that we worship. He is the God who is full of compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and the one who will not let the wicked go unpunished. Kindness and severity. This is the God that we worship. Hebrews 10, 19. Let's go there just to drive it home that this God is still a fearful God even in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 19. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, what's he talking about here? Well, God has made one way for us to draw near to him. He has made one way for us to avoid his wrath, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that is the new way. That is the being able to enter the holy place of God by his blood. And he is our great high priest. So he says, let us draw near to him with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith. Meaning, hold on to your faith in Christ. The people that he's writing to, to here are tempted to go back to the old covenant. Tempted to reject Jesus. Why? Myriads of reasons. But a big one is that they were being persecuted by their countrymen. Their life got hard. And they thought, well, you know what? The old covenant is still the word of God. I'm just going to kind of let go of Jesus. Go back to the old covenant so that I can maintain my... Uh, status in the community so that I can stop being persecuted. And he says here, look, Jesus made the way. He is the way to avoid the wrath of God. So let us draw near to him in a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. So, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. What is that confession of our hope? It is salvation by faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone. That is the confession of our faith. Hold firm to that. Hold fast to that without wavering. And let us, verse 24, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, that future day when Jesus comes again, as we get closer and closer, that's why we come to church. We come to encourage one another in the faith. It's not, just, it's not just because it's a good Christian thing to do. It's because we need help holding firm to our confession of faith. We need encouragement to do that. Four, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What is this willful sinning that he's talking about? It's not struggling with sin just any random sin. This is the sin of unbelief. This is the sin of, of rejecting God's solution to your sin problem, Jesus Christ. It's rejecting faith in Him. That is the sin that He's talking about here. So if you go on rejecting Jesus after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, okay? Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one and only way. If you reject him, there's not another sacrifice coming that will make you right with God. So if you reject that, knowing the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sin. There's nothing, no other way for you to be saved. Verse 27. Instead, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So if you reject Jesus... That means that there is that all you can expect is a terrifying judgment and a, and a fire of fury. You see, God genuinely is angry with the wicked, it says, every single day. He's not, he's not like one of our judges who, you know, he's got his law book here and he's like, well, let me see. The statute says this, so well, the punishment is this. All right, next. 
It's not this, it's not this sort of um, emotionless thing. God's fury is directed at sin. Why? Because it is legitimately wicked. It is legitimately destructive. It is legitimately evil. And His anger, His righteous anger, is legitimately directed at sin. So much so that in order to make all things new, He's going to set the universe on fire and burn it and remake the whole thing. He's going, and He is going to deal with sin. He's going to, take, he's going to take every wicked person who refuses to repent and He's going to put them in the solitary confinement forever in hell to isolate them from His new perfect world. And only those who have been made pure by the blood of Christ, who have been transformed, who have believed, and they've been forgiven, cleansed, sanctified, and then your body will be remade for this new heaven and this new earth where no sin will dwell. That's what God is doing. And there will be no sin there. God's fury is aimed at sin. And if you reject His one way of forgiveness, then all you have left to face is the fury of His wrath. What kind of fear does that produce? And is God, is this a bigger deal or a lesser deal in the New, Te- New Covenant versus the Old? Is God more harsh in the Old Covenant or more, or more severe in the New? What do you think? We'll look at verse 26, or verse... Uh, 28. If anyone has set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So do you see Rejection of Moses in the Old Covenant resulted in the death penalty, right? Death by stoning on the basis of two or three witnesses. It was a severe punishment. But he says here that rejection of Jesus is actually going to result in a more severe punishment. And, it is, and that punishment is more deserved than the Old Covenant. And he says here, Verse 30, for we, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That is both a comfort and a terror, right? I don't have to take out vengeance. I don't have to make sure someone gets paid back for their sins. God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will make it all right in the end there's abusive husbands, God will deal with them. Vengeance will be meted out on them. If there are wicked gossips and slanderers, God will deal with them. Thieves and murderers and homosexuals and fornicators, God will deal righteously with all of them, it says. And with us, if we don't take His one path of refuge. Verse 31 It is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Not a, uh, not a neat experience. Not, this is not the sort of fear that's just sort of a nice respect that you can take or leave. It's terrifying. We could go on. I mean, we could, we could do a series all summer on this because it's so all over the Scriptures. I mean, if you read the whole book of Deuteronomy, read the prophets in the Old Testament, read First and Second Kings, read what Jesus says, who preached on hell more than anything else, warned of judgment. Listen to uh, what Second Peter says and Jude and the book of Revelation. Second Thessalonians. The fear of God is all over the Scriptures. Why? So here's, here's the thing. We don't have time to look up every passage. So I'm going to give you some reasons to fear God. Okay, ready? Why should you fear God? Number one, He is all-powerful. He is mighty and majestic and all-powerful. All power belongs to Him. And there's no power in the world that does not derive its power from God. There's no government, no king, no Satan himself can do nothing outside of God's power and control. God is all-powerful, and he controls everything. That's, why you sh- that's one reason why you should fear God. The second is he is everywhere. We read from Psalm 139 earlier, his presence is a comfort to those who fear him, but a terror to those who don't. It says in Psalm 139, where can I go to get away from you? I can't get away from your presence, it says in 139, Psalm 139. I go into the depths of the sea, you're there. In the dark, you're there. I could go in, out into the wilderness and you're there. Even in my mother's womb, you were there, knitting me together. You cannot get away from God. The all-powerful one who is everywhere and who knows everything. Says it know, he knows the hairs of your head, which again is a comfort to those who love him and a terror to those who, who, who don't. He knows your thoughts, it says in Psalm 139 again. He knows every word that you are about to say before you say it. He knows the gossip. He knows the slander. He knows the bitter thoughts. He knows the lust and the, the pornography and the adultery and, the, and the, the strife and the ways in which we tear people down. He knows every single thing you say and do. He knows everything. So the all-powerful one who is everywhere and you can't get away from him, he knows everything that you say and think and do. He is also, here's why you should fear him, because he is good. You fear him because he is good. He is pure and righteous and holy, and he's full of love and integrity and truth. And he desires that his people would be zealous for what is good. Titus says that. He saved you so that you would be zealous for good works instead of zealous for your own selfish passions. What is good? 
Again, just like his character, it is pure, unselfish, full of love, full of mercy, full of truth. Instead, we are liars and murderers and adulterers, right? He is good. That's why you should fear him. He is the judge. And he has commanded that you fear him. He has promised rewards for fearing him. And we could go on and on. Just do a search in your, in your Bible and you'll come across them. So, if God is all-powerful, if he is everywhere, if he knows everything, he is the righteous judge and he has promised to come and bring everyone into judgment, he has also given you one place to be made right with him. And that is through Jesus Christ. The only man who ever loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every single second of the day and who loved his neighbor as himself. He lived perfectly in the fear of the Lord his whole entire life all the way up to, the, to obedience to death on the cross. And he decided to persevere through the fear of the cross in order to please his Father. And he did that for you. So, so for the course of human history, all of the times which people did not fear the Lord, which is they never feared him as they should, storing up wrath for themselves over and over and over and over and over their entire life. And yet the Lord was patient. He was gracious. He did not judge immediately. Right out the gate in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell, he promised that there would be someone, the seed of the woman, to deliver mankind from the serpent. It would be a man of some kind. And he made that promise. And he worked out all of history to bring about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son. And Jesus, who lived that perfectly and willingly, took all of that stored up wrath and God funneled it onto his shoulders. The fury of his judgment. The fury that he directed at the legitimate evil and wickedness of sin was directed at Jesus Christ, the perfect willing recipient of that wrath. So that the life that he lived could be credited to your account. And that is the one place of refuge. That is the one place to avoid the wrath of God. And so if you fear God, as you should, and He is everywhere evaluating everything you do, He knows every single sin right down to the jot and tittle of it, and He has said, here is one way of escape. You can't get away from Me. What? does a person who fears this God do? They don't say, Lord, I thank you that I'm so righteous and so deserving of your grace. They pound on their chest and they say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me because your only hope is that this God will show you mercy. You can't get away from him and you can't shake your fist at him because that would be like shaking your fist at that tsunami. It is insane. If you fear the Lord, 
I wish we could do this all day. <laughs> if you fear the Lord, you will run to his one place of refuge. You will throw up your hands asking for mercy. And you will run to the cross where Christ shields you from the wrath of God. And you will warn your neighbors to do the same. Because that tsunami is coming. And you have been given, you have been given advanced warning and instructions for how to avoid certain death and judgment. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. <sighs> Guys, I have so much more to say. I would encourage you to, to study it yourself and to see that this God, if you fear Him, genuinely fear Him, and all who truly do fear Him, need not be afraid. Let's go to him and ask for his grace to follow him, we pray.